As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stasekel, joined, as always, by Paul Tenorio. Paul, let's uh, say a quick prayer that we don't have the technical difficulties that we had last week. <laughs> I'm walking out of that here was, if it happens. That was brutal. We're brought to you this week by the Geek Squad from Best Buy. Um, you know, uh, may may they watch over us as we record and not have to record three different times. Um, Paul, we have a decent amount to get to today. Um the Gold Cup is going on. We're going to touch briefly on that on the U.S. national team's opening game, a 1-0 win against Haiti that, you know, a lot of people were relatively disappointed with, I think it would be fair to say. Uh, they have their second game coming up against Martinique on Thursday night. You're probably, hopefully, listening to this on Thursday, so we'll, we'll preview that match a little bit. Um, we're also going to talk a little bit about an item that we reported on Marcelo Claure, a part owner of Inter Miami, who is looking to sell his stake in the club. Um, never a dull moment down there in South Florida with that organization, despite some pretty dull on-field results, to say the least. But we are going to start with something that you and I and our colleague Jeff Reuter reported on Tuesday, and that is a story in USL that we think has maybe some broader ramifications for the wider world of American soccer. And that story is Jonathan Gomez, a 17-year-old left back who came up in the FC Dallas system before signing for Louisville in March of 2020, is closing in on a deal to join Real Sociedad. Um, That deal will be for a low amount of money. Um, We were told, you know, probably a little bit less than $100,000. Um, there are some weird mechanics in his contract that make it so. Uh, basically, he was going to be allowed to leave for free because he had a clause in his deal that said if John Hackworth, the former coach of Louisville, left Louisville, then he would get to 
basically bounce. Um, so <laughs> Hackworth did leave and, and Louisville is selling before uh, he can get away for absolutely nothing. Um, so that's an interesting move. Jonathan Gomez was on the preliminary roster for the, for the U S national team for the gold cup. He's represented both the U S and Mexico on the youth national team level. So there's a promising player, a move to a big European club and potential broader ramifications for the entire kind of ecosystem of MLS and USL and academies and MLS too. So let's dive into that, Paul. What do you make of this? And what do you kind of think the consequences or knock-on effects, not necessarily of this specific move, but of moves like this that we might see in the future? And and how do you think kind of this whole thing will shape up? Yeah, I think for me, Gomez is exciting because he is an example of the path that USL should take. I think for a long time in its existence, USL has been more focused on pros who are kind of like fringe MLS guys and guys who have played MLS and have dropped down or who have bigger roles in USL than they would in MLS and get better money in USL than they would in MLS, um, you know, being on the bench for a team in, in MLS versus being a regular starter in USL. And I think there obviously is always going to be a place for those types of players in USL, just as there are in all, you know, second division leagues around the world. But I think a big area of growth for USL is homegrown players, is young American players that can get consistent minutes at a good level and be sold on the same way I think that's the future for Major League Soccer. And there's been this weird dynamic that exists, Sam, where USL and MLS are kind of partners. There are the MLS teams in the USL Championship and in USL League One. And you know they've kind of respected the homegrown rules to a certain extent. But Gomez was an FC Dallas player. And he didn't want to sign a homegrown contract. Typically, MLS asks players to sign four and five year deals that that essentially allows the team to control their future, which is understandable, right? You, that's the whole idea. Yeah. Um, and he didn't want that, and so he signed with Louisville. And I think it to me is is exactly what teams like Louisville and Indy and Phoenix, Birmingham, the bigger, more ambitious clubs in in USL should be doing. They should be looking around the country and saying, where are the best players? And say, I'm going to sign you. Because wouldn't you rather come to Louisville and play in front of 8,000 fans with real pressure, real expectations in a nice stadium, and develop here at 16 and 17 and 18 years old than you know, go to the MLS Reserve League and play for Atlanta United 2 against Fort Lauderdale CF in front of 150 fans at the training ground in Atlanta? Fort Lauderdale CF always gets me. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, that, that to me is like, that's a real, a real part of development is pressure, is playing against men, is, you know, the, the idea that a coach could get fired because you don't perform well, or the fans are in the stands and they're creating an atmosphere that make it difficult to play. And you're not going to, I don't think, I don't have confidence that that's going to happen in the MLS Reserve League, at least not for quite a bit of time. So, it opens a door for USL and, mm -hmm. and, and the idea that there's a partnership that makes them stay away, that's over because this reserve league from MLS is infringing. It, it, it's, it's competing yeah. directly with USL. It's a D3 league that, you know, USL championship is D2, USL league one is D3. There's like a million D3 leagues, nieces in there somewhere. It's uh, anyway, that's a whole bizarre, different conversation. 
I hear what you're saying. And I think it is a good move for USL to kind of get into this space. We've seen it before. San Antonio has, has gotten in here in, in different ways and, and they have their own academies, some of these clubs, and they have their own academy league that's a little bit different than MLS in terms of how it's structured with different age groups and things like that. So th- they're moving into this space. And I think this could be a massive sort of growth industry for them, right? And, you know, Gomez, they left money on the table, as I described off the top, right? I don't think there's any doubt about that in terms of the transfer fee. But that doesn't mean it needs to happen in the future. In fact, Louisville, with it kind of bizarre, uh, released a statement after our report came out, basically being like, yeah, you know, this was a learning, right? I think they called it a learning or a learning experience. And like, this isn't going to happen again, essentially. Um, and, you know, I think my overarching feelings on this is that this is good for American soccer. Like, very good. Um, the more clubs that are in this space that are invested in developing youth players and getting to, getting them to a point where they have the ability and the trajectory and the potential to move on to a club like a Real Sociedad, is is a really good thing, right? And whether that's an MLS team doing so, whether that's a USL team doing so, whether that's some other team that exists in the future in some other league that doesn't even have a name yet, <laughs> right? Like, I don't particularly think it matters too much. But for these leagues, you know, it of course matters for them on a micro level, right? So I don't know. To your point kind of about needing pressure, I think it's a delicate balance. Right, and needing to play against grown men, and needing to play in front of in front of stadiums and fans, and and having environments that can kind of push you. Um, obviously, I think that's a good thing, right? But I think the idea for these MLS clubs, if they actually want to develop, has to be okay. We we groom this kid in MLS two, right? And then when he's maybe even before he's ready, ready, we throw him into the fire in MLS, and then you get those same things that you were talking about but amplified even further, right? In terms of pressure, in terms of competition, in terms of atmosphere, in terms of all of that stuff. So I think it's just kind of dependent on the individual club. And I don't know, it's, it's like I said, I think it's a good thing because I think this is a sign that the whole system is maturing, right? And I think you'll start to see more diversity of models in individual clubs, right? So some of these MLS teams, they're not even joining MLS2 yet. Some of them are staying in USL, <laughs> at least for a minute, right? And like, that's kind of awkward and weird. But, you know, I think it could be a good thing. And maybe you have teams in MLS too, maybe end up loaning players out to some of those bigger USL championship teams, right? As sort of a bridge between MLS two and MLS. So I don't know. I think there are possibilities here. And I'm curious to see how it'll work. Um, but I do really like the fact that USL is maybe moving into this space further. Yeah, I think I think it's been a really a really important part of USL's development. You know, what's happening in San Antonio with their homegrown players is probably the best example, though Gomez steps right to the forefront as well, right? In that for the growth of the sport in this country, for the development of players in this country, MLS can't reach every market. We know that. We talk about it all the time. And it's why we get so frustrated at things like homegrown territories, right? Because it limits where teams are looking for players, right? It means that one team is looking for players in Dallas, which is producing all of these professionals. Only one team is the gatekeeper for MLS for that talent. One team is allowed to look in Chicago for talent. 
So even setting aside those markets, if USL teams are suddenly committing to looking for talent, and we're now having professional soccer developing players in cities like San Antonio, in cities like Phoenix, in cities like uh, Birmingham, like I mentioned before, which has produced two professional players right now, Chris Richards and Tanner Tessman are both from Birmingham, right? That's a good thing for American soccer. There are players everywhere. The more professional teams we have looking for those players, developing those players, the better. I have a fear about this MLS Reserve League that's based on just my experience. I, I, I did a story. It must have been back in 2008 or 2009, maybe. I, I would imagine probably 2008. I was You're a, old ball. I, 2008? I know. I was Jeez. a year into my job at the Washington Post and kind of trying to find my niche within soccer because Steve Goff was the soccer writer there and very established. And I thought, okay, I'm, I was covering high school sports and high school soccer, and I was getting really into kind of the youth soccer space and the U.S. Development Academy launched. And I was writing a lot about the launch of the Development Academy and what it would mean for development. And I was writing about it. And I did an interview with Bruce Arena. And, you know, Bruce doesn't mince words. He never has. And what Bruce said was, you know, the, the problem has never been the youth space. We've always developed players that compete with your top European teams and South American teams at 15 and 16. The problem is from 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, we have a black hole of, of development. There's nowhere to get these kids a transition from the youth fields to the professional fields. And shortly after that, the LA Galaxy launched LA Galaxy 2, Los Dos, right? And put them in USL. They were the first. Shortly club. after 2008? Yeah, it was a couple a couple years. I mean, it was you like could six see, years, I think. I don't think it was, it was that long. Pretty sure it was. But you know, I think that was the first step in kind of creating that bridge. And I do think it's important that maybe even less than just the pressure of the fans is that you're you're challenging these players beyond playing in a U nineteen league, right? And so my my concern is, are MLS owners going to try to save a buck, which they're already doing by launching this reserve league. But are they going to try to save money and just basically make these reserve teams a different name for their U19 teams? On one hand, I understand wanting to get minutes for all of these young uh, yeah, players. That's, I, don't, I don't know that that's a bad thing. It, it, I think you need to play against professionals. I mean, look at, you know, we, you know, I think it would be good and, and look, uh, Full transparency here. I'm working on. I'm going to work on a story about this whole idea, and I'm going to talk to different GMs and different coaches, and and at both USL and MLS levels, kind of about what this whole reserve league means for the. Look at that! Now you have to do it. Yeah. For no, I don't. I've I've said stuff before, and had Pablo end up writing stories or somebody else writing stories <laughs> about what I said on the show. But you know, I I think what would be interesting is to study the Premier League and what's happened with their Premier League two teams. You know, there is a belief in the Premier League that, you know, those reserve leagues weren't doing enough to develop players because they were just 19-year-olds playing against 19-year-olds. And, you know, there there was a real concern that they weren't getting challenged to really grow. And they certainly, those kids aren't, a lot of those kids weren't getting minutes in the Premier League, right? So I think we've seen more players going on loan to championship sides or even League One sides. Um and, and I just wonder what MLS is going to do to ensure that, okay, if you don't have the atmosphere of a stadium and if you don't um, have players playing against professionals, what are you doing to make sure the level is high enough 
that you're actually getting these young players ready to go to MLS to develop. And, well, and that's a, a you're big You're never concern. ready though. That's the thing. You're, no one's ever ready, right? The level isn't going to be the level of MLS. It's not, it might not be the level of the USL championship. It might be, right? We don't know what it's going to look like exactly. But let's say it's not, right? Let's say it's a level below the USL championship and it's a lot of 18, 19 year olds, right? It's certainly not going to be the level of MLS. I think there's still value in having that, right? And in having those guys travel around with the first team on weekends and playing their reserve league game in the same stadium or in a, you know, the same city. They're not going to open si- the stadium for these kids to play. They're not going to. In the same, in the same city as, as these, you know, playing against the, the equivalent club, right? Like, and you're training with first teams. And it's, it's like what I said earlier. I think it's going to be dependent on the individual clubs, right? This is, I think, an upgrade over a U19 Academy League, right? Like, would you agree with that? Sure. I'm not saying that there isn't value to be had. I'm saying, are they going to maximize the value here? Right. Right? is Is this a positive step forward, creating a reserve league versus, you know, telling all of these teams you have to have a team in USL? Is this a step forward? I don't know. And, and to that effect, I mean, this, this goes back to the question we're talking about with USL. You should be, if you're Louisville or San Antonio or Indy, or any, any of, of these teams, teams yeah. you should be going to the academies in Dallas and Seattle and saying, listen, you can sign with the Sounders too and play for a couple years in this reserve league. And maybe you get, maybe you feel confident that they have a pathway for you in Seattle or in Dallas, or you can come here and you're going to be playing against professionals. You're going to be playing in a, a look at the stadium you're going to be playing in. Look at the sure. fans we're averaging. That that to me open and, and that's not a bad thing. To no, it's point, not. Sam, and, that's and, a good and, thing. I think and, it's and a hard it, sell. It, it I think prompts, it's a hard sell. But I think it prompts some hard questions for MLS. Like they, I think it prompts a real discussion about homegrown territories. You know, the moment USL starts to go into <laughs> MLS markets and 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 you know trying to to recruit players, they they have to start thinking differently about how they're pitching players on, on signing with these reserve leagues because it's not going to be... Uh, there are USL teams that are taking things very seriously, you know, mm-hmm. that are really investing. Yeah, no, for sure. I think the top-tier prospects in MLS academies are still going to be signing homegrown deals and then maybe playing in USL, like we see now a lot, right? And those homegrown deals are often pretty lucrative. Like, you're talking six-figure salaries, right? And I don't know that USL teams are going to be really able to compete with that. I think the Gomez case is illustrative. You know, I heard, we didn't put this in the story, but I heard that one of the reasons he did not sign with Dallas, right? He played some games for North Texas SC and and they offered him a homegrown deal. But one of the reasons he didn't sign was that he wanted the ability to be free to go to Europe when he turned 18. And he turns 18 in a couple months in September, month and month and a half. Is that just a month and a half away? Wow. Um, <laughs> so you know, that that could be an alternative pathway, right? You're talking about the four or five-year contracts that MLS teams offer the, offer these kids, which, fair play. I would do the same thing if I was running one of these clubs, right? Um, maybe that's a way that USL can get in and snake some, some of these top prospects. Um, I don't know, man. I think, I, I think I'm a little bit more optimistic about the MLS 2 league than you are and kind of its role. But I, th- I, I think your point about the Premier League and Premier League 2 is illustrative. Like, I'm with you there. But I think what needs to happen is that, okay, either teams, like, 
a Philly would be a good example of this, right? Of a team that was quick to throw kids into MLS, right? Maybe a little bit before they had proven that they were ready, right? And it, and it's paid off for them, right? It's sink or swim. Let's see what we've got. Not every team has been like that. Most have not in MLS, right? So maybe you have some teams that use MLS too. Is kind of like, okay, let's develop these kids. We'll throw them in quickly. Maybe some of them say, okay, we'll have them learn our way in MLS2 and be around our guys. And when, when they do well, maybe we'll loan them out to USL championship team or we'll loan them out to a lower division team in a different country even and then get them a little bit further seasoned and then bring them back and then they'll be an MLS player, right? So I don't think there's any one route that has to be taken here. Um, and I think opening it up further options, which I think this MLS2 league does, is a positive thing. That's kind of my overarching take. Yeah. I, again, I'm not trying to say the MLS Reserve League is a net negative. My concern is what the commitment level is going to be in the same way that that's been a, a real concern at the Development Academy, right? You have teams that take it very seriously and teams that do the absolute bare minimum that they are required to do. In which case, it's serving no purpose, right? You might as well not do it if you're going to do the bare minimum, right? Yeah. And yeah. so the the my fear is that there will be too many teams doing the bare minimum to save costs and that that will drag down the quality of the league. And I, all I'm asking for and hoping for is is that they, they understand that it's not just about having a place for these kids to play. Right. It's about having a place for these kids to develop. You have yeah. to create an environment in which they're developing. That's the point of this. You know, it's not winning games. It's not, and it's, it's not, you know, trying to put together a package of a few hundred more games for your TV deal. It's not a commercial. <laughs> do, you really, thing. do you really think that's what this is? I think is about? the long play, no, but I think the long play is honestly the big picture. Is, is what USL should really be concerned about. I think the big picture is when you see them talking about inviting independent teams in, I think MLS recognizes that expansion's coming to an end soon and that their, their reach to markets ends and that this is a chance to extend the reach to all those other TV markets. So in the short term... Do you, you think people deal. are going to be tuning in to MLS2 games? I don't know. I mean, people... USL has an ESPN Plus deal. I'm not saying that this is about money tv money in the short term i'm saying that this is about reach in the long term it's about eventually having mls reaching not mls division one but mls the entity and, and that's not a bad thing by the way you want your professional league to have an uh a footprint at wherever you can have it in this country mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so this gives them a chance to put their footprint in all these other smaller markets that mls is not going to reach into why give that to usl Right? Why allow USL to continue to expand and continue to grow when they can now do that? And I think that's the long-term vision. I think the long-term vision for them is to create a league that eventually becomes the new USL and is kind of the new second division. I, I don't. I, this is not from sources. This is my speculation. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying that from when if I'm game planning this out, if I'm looking at why are you doing this if you're MLS. On the short end, yes, part of it is just creating a developmental space and, you know, some teams didn't want to spend as much money as they needed to in the USL and USL wasn't sure about whether they wanted to have MLS teams in the championship because, you know, 
Yeah, the you don't want to cannibalize your own and product. And so why would yeah. you be in the USL League One instead of controlling your own? There are all those other reasons. But I think as you game plan this out and you look at, okay, what are we going to do in this space? That That's the real benefit is we can extend our reach, right? We can go and find more talent, right? The whole idea is to to develop, identify and develop American, young American players that you can then sell to teams in Europe for, for a profit. And I think MLS Next and this MLS Reserve League are is all about creating a scouting network via partners, via all these other clubs that funnel to MLS and funnel into sales. And this is this is just a part of that process. Sure. And USL will kind of I don't know. How do you see USL in that process? That's basically the, is it is USL the like a remora fish like on the outside of this like big whale? Like is that how you see it, or do you think they can be more than that? I, I think, think they de- can be more than that. It hundred percent. It depends on what they do now. They have to recognize that that's MLS's goal. MLS's goal is not to be adjacent to USL. It's to of course eat not. USL. Yeah. So USL has to start competing. And that's where I'm talking about competing for these young, talented players. Because that's what MLS mm-hmm. is going to be doing. Right. You know? And they're going to let USL go and get, you know, it, hey, I'm going to use somebody's name and I feel bad that I'll do it. But, like, if in a couple of years, I don't even, I think he's still, yeah. So, like, I don't know. Like, let's say, like, Mikey Ambrose finishes up his career in MLS and he goes and signs with Birmingham, you know? Sure. MLS yeah. will love that. Keep, keep signing those guys. No problem. Mm-hmm. Let us sign the young guys. No, USL has to change its mindset and say, incentivize all of its owners, incentivize the league itself to say, we have to start developing players too. And they're, and they're I doing think there's that. Room for, I think there's room for both for USL there. But Yes, you know, but I'm saying that yeah. they that they have to get more aggressive in the youth space. And they've mm-hmm. done that. I wrote a story about it. Their idea of academy leagues um was to create a, a a combined group of the best players across age groups to compete against each other. I thought it was a really smart interpretation that, you know, bring, keeps the cost down but allows them to identify talent and to groom talent in their own region. We're seeing more USL teams signing players from their own markets to professional contracts. It's happening. I think that the reserve league from MLS is going to for should, I don't know if it's going to, should force the USL to, to stop on that accelerator and say, we need to go all in on this and we need to be competing wherever we can for, for young, talented players. Like, yeah. That's the reality. Yeah. I mean, I think the development of a market between USL and MLS would aid in this entire process too, right? And this is something that Jeff Reuter talks about all the time to us and in his writing. And, you know, he, I feel like he does a story on it every year, every six months, and he should, you know? <laughs> um, and it's something... Maybe we've poo-pooed a little bit before. I have maybe not. But I, Sam, I won't, when won't you go involved. through the list of best players, I went through the list of best no, 11s for USL for the last three years. I, I was talking to somebody at a club, excuse me, you know, who was saying, hey, you know, they were just looking, we were just talking about winger options and, you know, are there wingers available? And I thought, oh, well, I'll look in USL and see if there are like certain wingers there or whatever. And like 70% of the best 11, maybe even more than that, were international guys. Yeah. The MLS teams are not going to be signing internationals from USL, right? It's I just, mean, it's, that, it's, it's not going to happen. Like, or it's, it's going to be know, rare. Man. My point is, if you want to develop a real ecosystem between the leagues, again, developing talent does that, right? I, I mean, I agree. I agree with you on that. That that like primarily, it should be a domestic breeding ground. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing there. 
But I think like we've seen it, right? Stanley Okumu. He was a guy, you know, playing for Real Monarchs. RSL didn't really want to sign him because they're like, you probably will be our fourth center back. So we'll focus on selling you. He moved to a team in Sweden. He just moved to, I can never remember if it's Gank or Ghent. I always get them confused in Belgium. <laughs> but he just moved to one of those for like $4 million. Like two years ago, this guy was playing for Real Monarchs. Two years ago. Like he couldn't have been a contributor in, in MLS. Like, Again, I'm I not mean, saying I, there aren't international players in USL that are worth signing. I'm saying that the, to, in order to foster a more active market, it's going to come in the domestic yes, player pool. Yes, but and I that, think a more active market for every type of player would be a healthy thing. Yeah, and I, I, I just think like, again, big picture here, Sam. I think this is where you came from it at the beginning, which is this is a good thing for American soccer, right? It would yeah. be a good thing for American soccer if every USL team hits the accelerator on development and is competing for players in their market, competing for players mm-hmm. in MLS markets. And if MLS teams are then forced to hit the accelerator and really push to sign guys to this reserve league, and it's going to give more players a chance to play professionally and potentially, you know, yeah. more Aaron Longs to emerge or whatever. I mean, I think I think it would be a good thing if we had more teams do that. I don't think it would be a good thing if every team does it, right? I'm pro diversity of models for clubs, and like and like that would establish a little bit of a hierarchy, which I think is more conducive to player movement and player development. Honestly, that's what you see in Europe, right? Like the Premier League or La Liga or Serie A, there are a hierarchy of teams, and if you play well for a middle class team in or a mid table team in Italy, right? Guess what? Juventus or Inter or Roma are going to try and buy you, right? And like MLS, that doesn't really exist. All the it's teams are theoretically on the same plane, on the on same plane, and, and and so I don't know. I think that would help as well <laughs> in this entire kind of ecosystem. Um, and I think diversity of models would kind of lead to that. You see a hierarchy, but there isn't movement within that hierarchy. So, much, yeah, so. There, this is probably another show, Sam. But it's an idea I've had, and I, I don't know the solution to it. I'm not. The, I'm certainly not the only person that's thought of it. I know. I know for a fact there's at least one club in MLS that's really pushing for it. Which is right now because they are single entity technically. Even though I think that you know the Olivia Moultrie case puts that on blast significantly, and maybe should make them rethink <laughs> rethink how they approach this. They can't. You can't sell players with an MLS. You can only trade them with GAM, right? Sure. And that that really um, limits that market, right? It really limits that hierarchy. It, it creates problems because if you have a really quality player and you are Colorado or Dallas and you're very okay selling those players, it, you can't really do it within the league, right? You can't be an LAFC or a Seattle and say, okay, I want to sign Jesus Ferrer because he's going to take three million for me to sign him and I don't have 3 million in GAM, right? And the reason, the only reason they can't do that is because you can't have uh, an entity pay itself for a player, right? And technically all these players are under contract with MLS, not with their respective teams. That's why they can't be bought and sold. So I don't, there's Is that like a, is that a legal thing? Yeah. I mean, what you can't, you you have to change registration. I mean, I I don't know. They'd have to figure out a way to do it, um, but you can't trade I mean, you could try to create a market where you trade cash and see if you can create a legal loophole to do it. But well, like, how is it different than a trade of GAM? Because anyway, GAM we're going is down a stupid rabbit Yeah, because away, GAM but. is this thing that's been created by MLS. I know, but you're saying you have to change registration. Well, guys move teams and change registration. Like, that's the thing that happens. Yeah, but it's not a purchase. It's a fake yeah. transfer. It's a fake transfer okay. is what it is. So A fansfer. 
so that's the that's the dilemma. That that player is never transferring. He's still an MLS player. He's just, you know, his rights are owned by another team. And 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 so there might be a window to do it. I'm not a lawyer. Maybe somebody out there who's a sports lawyer would want to tackle this problem. There are teams. What's interesting is there are teams, I've been told, CSOs who have made this a priority to try to get this done. And it's not the teams that you'd think. It's not the teams who are buying the players. Who it's the be, selling teams. It's the yeah. selling teams. It's the teams yeah. who say... This is a way for us to make our model work even better if yeah. we can sell these players. No, it makes a lot um, of sense. So, you know, for me, that's a big dilemma in kind of creating this open system. But, you know, that's for another show, like I said. I just think, again, this Reserve League, MLS Reserve League, I'm I'm interested to see how they tackle these challenges. And really, I'm I, this Gomez move and the emergence of the Reserve League, I think it should be lighting a fire under the butt of USL to say – we need to change our model. We need to be aggressively change our model. Aggressively yeah. tilt the Pivot. scales Pivot. more. Yeah. You know, you all, you have a scale of veteran players, international yeah. players, and youth players. You want to lean. You want to lean into the younger. Yeah, just like MLS is right. Yeah. Just push that scale down towards towards development. For sure, I think that's a pretty good way to put a pin on it. I think the Gomez move is really interesting. I think it's really exciting. I think it's potentially a sign of things to come. For USL, I think it should be a sign of things to come anyway for USL if they do this properly. Um, and how MLS reacts in response to that will be interesting, as will how MLS runs the MLS2 or MLS Reserve League, which I think, Paul, we need to come up with a name for on this show. But we can do that another time. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with uh, some USMNT and some Miami talk after the break. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, so I said going into the break that we need to we need to come up with a name for this team or this league, and and Paul's gotten there. He's got a nomination. Take sometimes, it away. Sometimes inspiration just strikes. It didn't take me long. I just feel like you know all these MLS clubs really want to be a global brand. You know, global brand, the, man. The Club de Foot and yeah. Chicago Fire Football Club and Charlotte Columbus FC. SC. We STL, hardly knew ye. STLC FC. Um, all Sorry, say that clubs. again. Yeah, Five STLC, times FC. Fast. I, I don't know. Are they FC or SC? Might, SC. S. And S- it's very STLC, important SC. that it's that you scream the name because it's all caps on right. all it's mentions. All caps. So, yeah. in order to really enhance the global bl- brand of the MLS Reserve, the League, glo- global blend. 
yeah. little Freudian slip there. Yeah, huh? exactly. We have decided to name it MLS Duh. Duh. MLS yeah. Duh. Much like League Duh. Yes. Over in France. But, you know, like. But also like MLS Duh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're, we're still accepting nominations, but that's the leader in the clubhouse for the moment. <laughs> uh, moving on. <laughs> Speaking of duh, uh, the U.S. men's national team played a Gold Cup game against Haiti the other night. It was a little bit duh. <laughs> um, it was a 1-0 win for the U.S. It was not particularly exciting. Um, Haiti, you know, were organized. I thought they played pretty well. They got out on the break a couple of times. But it's also Haiti. They were missing some players doing, due to COVID. It's not the most talented team in the world to begin with. Um, and the U.S., you know, wasn't great. Just wasn't great. Not a lot to get excited about. You know, people got a little jazzed about Gianluca Busio after he came in in the second half. James Sands as well after he came in. Shifted to a 3-5-2 for Greg Berhalter. I thought the U.S. did look better in in those after those changes and, and after that formational shift. But, Paul, let's, let's recap this one quickly. Just kind of your overall impressions on the match. Anyone that stood out, didn't stand out um, before we look ahead to Thursday's round duh against Martinique. Yeah, I thought, um, first of all, like Haiti's interesting. I was really interested to see them in the Gold Cup because they've been together for so long now. I felt bad for the players. It's like a never-ending national team call-up. <laughs> they were together for World Cup qualifiers. I saw them play in Bridgeview against Canada. It went poorly. One of the biggest goalkeeper gaffes I've ever seen in person yeah. from the backup goalkeeper. And then they went down for Gold Cup qualifiers. They played those qualifiers. They qualified, and then they came right back up to play the U.S. So there was somewhat of an advantage to that, I suppose, of getting a lot of minutes together as they're, a group. They're in sync, for and, sure. You know, I think they have, you know, I think they're better than some of the other, you know, I certainly think they're better than Martinique and Guadeloupe and, and those teams. This is a team that, you know, has been competitive um, sure. historically. That they're they're said, not going to roll over. Yeah. That they made the semifinals of the last Gold Cup, right. in fact. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think they took Mexico to extra time in that game. Uh, yeah, I think they may have. Yeah. If so, not, it was very close. Yeah. So, you know, look, I, I, it's not a pushover. Um, but I do think we expected more from the U.S. Uh, in general, I just thought that there was a lack of energy um, in the performance, especially in the final third. I didn't feel they didn't feel dangerous. There was never no. a moment in time where the U.S. felt like exceedingly dangerous. In fact, I thought some of the more dangerous opportunities came early for Haiti. Two two opportunities for Derek Etienne. Um, one, he, he missed wide left. The other, he missed into the side netting on the right side. Um, you know, I thought the U.S. in general needed more from their attack. And, and I'm not too shocked by that. Um, no. When you look at the roster, you look at the wingers, we knew coming in that they didn't have a lot of winger depth. But I... I and then Paul Ariola went down and then with Paul an injury. Ar- Ariola yeah. got hurt. And so, in general, not surprised. Think we're going to see some changes for sure. I, I, I will say again, I'm just going to, I had a problem with it when the, you know, to me it was the one big question mark of the roster when it came out, which was Jonathan Lewis being included on the roster over somebody like uh, Cade Cowell or Chris Mueller. I, I, I still don't get that. I know he's been a super sub, but he started the other day. and mm-hmm. And I just, it doesn't, add up to me i just i i don't i don't get it but other than that man i thought busio was good i thought sands was good and i think i think we'll see a five three two in the next game with with those yeah. guys so. three five two five three two whatever, whatever you want to call it 
Um, I thought Acosta was pretty good as well. Um, yeah. for, for what that's worth. Uh, other than that, Shaq, uh, Moore, Zim- Shaq Moore was decent. Look, I think Shaq yeah, Moore, the fine. one thing I, I, I saw from him that, that kind of, you know, is the area I think he needs to work on most is just his final ball. You know, if he can, if he can get a consistent final ball, he probably is playing for a different club and making more money. Um, yeah, well, that's kind of a big thing for outside. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> but you know, he, he's got he's got pace. I think he can defend in space. Um, he is good carrying the ball forward. I, his ideas of when to go and when to stay are right. He just, I thought he lacked in his delivery and in his decision making. There was a moment yeah. actually early in the game where he carried the ball inside, and he had an opportunity, more than one, to just lay off a pass. On off of the shoulder of the defender into the path of the forward, and instead he cut it to his left foot and then tried to cut it back to his right foot to get the shot off, and it didn't end well. Like those little things, but I, sure. I thought he was okay as well. Yeah, I thought he was. I thought he was fine. I mean, he's playing at a position of strength for the U.S., which is tough for him. And I, but it's I, worth noting, Sam, really quickly. Sorry that Berhalter said. Like, I mean, this is a guy who was training on his own. You know, in Georgia, he wasn't even. He hasn't even been in preseason yet. Wasn't expected to yeah. start. Reggie Cannon yeah. was a late injury. Um, yeah. problem and he went in and played a significant number of minutes so yeah no no, no. he did well under well. the circumstances for sure i thought the center backs were fine i was actually i thought walker zimmerman's distribution is better than it has been for the national team maybe ever um he helped he played a role in that first goal with kind of a line breaking pass um but not really a ton to take away i would like to see i think i would like to see the the five three two or the three five two what are we calling it what are we calling it on the show? I mean, I think we call it a three-five-two. I asked Burhalter if he was going to go to that formation, and he called it a five-three-two. Even though I called it a three-five-two in my question, so okay, I don't know. I'll call it's it the a same thing. I like it's to think same. of it as an attacking, a three-center back formation. Formation. Three How about five that? Two. A, a three-five cent. A, three, a three-center back formation. It better be a three-five-two. I would like to see it again with this group. The wingers aren't particularly strong on this team, right? Um, I think you have some good options at, at right back with Morin, Cannon, and left back. You know, Vines is he wasn't amazing. He scored a goal. He, he scored a goal. It was the, he wasn't the amazing, but but he's he's a player with potential for sure. And and you know you can keep the midfield three kind of intact. I would like to see Busio get some run. I think I've seen enough of Jackson Ewell for a while. Um, personally, he's I, I don't know. He's dipped a little this year. He's he, he was a not lot this year, and he was not playing like this in the past. And and so that's, you know, something that he's going to have to work through. Um, but Busio, I thought was a lot more progressive. He's a really smart player. Um, and I would like to see, you know, obviously there's, there's reports that are connecting him with Venezia in, uh, in Syria. Ah, we'll see if those come to fruition here. Um, Tanner Tessman, another player connected with that club. Um, so, We'll see. Um, but yeah, I, I think I would like to see kind of that, that three center back formation again, uh, against Martinique, uh, maybe a DK, uh, and Zardis up there, up top. Um, see how they work together. Yeah, it could be DK and Zardis. You could also change things up a little bit. You could go DK and Hoppy and, and DK and Giacchini and get, get, you know, something different. Um, that's, that'll be the most interesting part of a switch is, is what does he look for in his two forward combination up top? Um, but I think on the whole, Paul, like the first game sort of reinforced what I thought entering this tournament that, you know, the number of spots that these, that this group is going to grab for World Cup qualifiers is pretty low. 
Um, and, and you know, there'll be, there'll obviously be some guys like Jet, Acosta. Um, we pretty much know they're going to be in the mix. Matt Turner, I'm sure will probably be one of the three goalkeepers, um, assuming he performs well at the gold cup. Um, and then, you know, Zimmerman and Robinson are, are, are probably fighting for a spot as well. But, um, yeah. Reggie Cannon. I mean, I think there. if you look at this team, you're probably saying, like you say, if we go from back to the front, Turner's fighting for a world cup spot as the number two. He'll probably qualifying. be in two or World three. Cup qualifying. World Cup qualifying spot. Uh, Miles and Walker, yes. But, you know, who knows what that depth chart is going to look like. It depends on if right. Chris Richards is they healthy. They could both they go. They could both go. Yeah. Um, Busio has a chance to surpass Jackson Ewell and fight yeah, in as a, sure. as a number six. I think Kellen Acosta, the same, is fighting for a spot. I think uh, Kellen Acosta is pretty locked prob- on. Man. Probably locked with, in. with the number of positions he can play. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. And then I, you know, obviously Paul Ariel's injury hurts him. He was trying to get into this this squad as a. Although as a not that serious, he's staying with the team f- with the U.S. So and, and I think we'll be able really to see trust him, later. him. You know, so I think and DK of course at the number nine spot. Um, and we should say we, yes, like you you pointed out, Reggie Cannon. I think will be on the team for sure. Um, anything you want to see from this Martinique game? That you haven't already touched on? Just more aggressive. I think they should be playing very, very aggressive, high-paced, high, pressing often, and scoring mm-hmm. goals. Like, that's what you yeah. want to see. Uh, uh, just a confident and dominant performance and not something that felt so, I don't know. Lackadaisical? Like, yeah, like, it just felt like there wasn't enough there to, you know, but I get it. I mean, some of these guys, like you said, it's, you know, I don't know. I just feel like you. I just want to see more. Just more of everything. And except for, yep. I should say that, I and this is kind of mean, but I, I probably think less of Jonathan Lewis and less of Jackson Ewell, but more of everything else. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Well, let's take another quick break. We'll come back afterwards and talk about more drama in Miami, the city where the heat is on. We'll get to that in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And we are back. Final segment of Allocation Disorder. Paul, we reported this last week with an assist from Felipe Cardenas and Matt Slater, our friend over in the UK. Uh, But Marcelo Claure and Masayoshi Son, um, two of the part owners of Inter-Miami. Marcelo Claure is actually technically the chairman of the club, although he does not sit on the MLS board of director board of governors that that role falls to Jorge Mas, who is the managing owner, uh, are looking to sell their stakes in the team. Uh, we don't know the exact percentage of those stakes, but they are significant. Claure is a guy that's been involved with efforts to bring soccer and, and MLS to Miami going all the way back to 2008 when he was trying to bring a Barcelona like branded team to, to the city. Uh, he was in with Beckham from the very beginning of this effort um, and he was the one that brought Son on board when the Mouse brothers came on board. I think when was that late in 2017? Um, so a guy who's been a significant player in that club for as long as it's even been an idea, um, looking to get out, of course, in the wake of this, you know, whole 
brutal first year, uh, brutal launch, uh, difficulties with the stadium that are still ongoing, and then the whole Blaze Matuidi scandal. Um, so a lot going on uh, in Miami. Um, we, like I said, we don't know the significance of the or the percentages of their stakes, but you know it's not minor, right? Um, it could be. I wouldn't be shocked if combined the two of them were fifty percent. Yeah, um, there's a lot of the club that's up for sale. The question is going to be what kind of money they're looking for, and I've I've heard it's significant. I mean, just look at the valuations that are going around, yeah. right? Like, look at the prices that teams are selling for in Houston, in Orlando. You're talking 400 plus, 450 million, right? I would imagine Miami is going to try and get a price way higher than those. But I don't way know how higher. you can do that. I mean, you're playing in a temporary stadium in Fort Lauderdale. You have no progress that's been reported or, or seems to be on the horizon for Miami Freedom Park. I mean, what are you selling? You're, you're, you're uh, a losing team. You, you get have to be friends with David Beckham, bad man. bad roster. It's and, priceless. You know, Beckham is your... <laughs> You know, Beckham's sporting director moves have included, you know, uh, a guy who smokes cigarettes on the field. Right. And like a former (laughs) championship defender who is exactly what we thought he would be. And, you know, Kieran Gibbs coming to try to save the day. I mean, it's not great. You know, like, I don't know what you're selling. You're selling. Well, you're selling. Of Messi. I don't know. I don't know what you're selling. You're selling a long term vision, right? Like, that's first like we get bogged down in the here and now because of course we do like that's what's right in front of our faces and miami is bad right now there's no doubt about that um but if you believe that they can get a stadium done and you believe that mls can grow into this big thing and you believe that inner miami can attract real stars in their primes although Messi with this new five-year contract that he's reportedly signing with barca is, is going to be a little bit off the table it appears for a moment um you know then you're buying into something like that right? And we know plenty of people are interested in Miami as a market, not just players or coaches or execs, but potential owners, right? So we'll see. I mean, I can't imagine. I'm imagining ownership wrote some pretty damn big checks last year to cover all of the costs. And obviously COVID played a role in that, but I'm guessing they're probably going to write some more checks this season. Um, You know, this is a team that still doesn't have a Jersey front sponsor, unless I'm blanking out. No, you're right. Um, the corporates, the corporate base down there has never been great from a sponsorship standpoint. I mean, Marlins Park was open for how many years before they got a sponsor for that, right? Just, just earlier, a few months ago. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting, but they're going to push for the highest valuation ever, I would bet, in MLS. And I think the current one, I'm not counting the DC United Mark Ingram 710 million valuation because that just doesn't pass any kind of test, in my opinion. Um, but the highest one I think now is slightly north of seven hundred million per Bloomberg. I want to say for LAFC when Vincent Tan sold half of his stake in the club to the other owners. Oh, right before the pandemic. Um, so in twenty twenty. So time. I would expect I would expect for yeah right. I would expect for them to push for higher than that. Um, will they get it? I don't know. Will the Moss Brothers buy the stake? Maybe. I don't know will be a new owner and how will that affect the dynamic down there? Who knows, but never a dull moment. Like I said, uh, what do you think it ends up going for? Assuming they do eventually sell it. Who knows? I mean, the numbers that I get reported here and there, like I, I, they're so difficult to, to go through. I mean, in my reporting on the Orlando city number, you know, you start hearing different sources telling you that that number means different things and that the real cash, uh, 
part of the deal or the real valuation part of the deal without the credits is way lower than what they're announcing. So yeah. I, I don't know, man. I, I think I, I would guess that it's going to end up somewhere around 600 million, somewhere in that range. I think it's just hard to get that valuation. LAFC has a beautiful, sparkling downtown stadium. They've sold out yeah. their suites. They have, you know, or they had a, a sponsor name of the stadium. Uh, they they got to figure out what happens now that the bank is no longer going to be the bank. I don't know. Have they replaced that stadium yet? I don't think yeah, so. Not yet. No. But, you know, yeah. they, they've got a lot of things in place that Miami does not have. You know, even mm-hmm. DC United has a beautiful not beautiful but it's a night for me it's beautiful because i never I, I for years wanted to see a stadium in dc but they have a stadium in, in dc and people rag on audi field it seems kind of nice it doesn't seem it's that great bad. It's, it's in an amazing location in dc right on yeah. the waterfront the southwest waterfront just a short walk away from nats park it's close to metro stations you know so how do you compare that to miami I mean, I don't understand. I mean, besides the size of the market, but what's the size of the market, Miami, compared to LA? You know, smaller. So you, yeah. you, you. I, I just, I don't know. I, I think six hundred million to me would be the the ceiling there. Um, but I, I just, I heard the asking price is insane. And and you know, Sam, you did a big story on valuations and how crazy they they are in MLS. And my favorite part of it is, you know, when you talk to people about this stuff, you know. All you need is the right billionaire who wants the toy. Yeah, that's all you only need. Only takes only takes one one buyer, man. Only takes one. So, and if you have two, then you can get a really good price. I do think it's interesting though that this is happening. I think it it shines a light on some of the instability boardroom issues that were occurring yeah. last year. And I think that just you know, I think it. Yeah, I just think it really shines a light that there were there were a lot of issues happening behind the scenes in Atlanta. We know about them, some of them, because Miami. MLS launched or Miami Atlanta, because yeah. you you we know about them because of the investigation. investigation. But there are probably many more that we don't know about to recklessly speculate for a moment there. <laughs> well, I just think that any I mean, I think I just think it's interesting that to your point, an owner who's been involved from the very start is is selling this soon into the journey and mm-hmm. not exactly at a time when the valuation would be at its peak, right? It's not like he's selling right after they open their new stadium. Right. Yeah. So, I don't know. It'll be curious. You mentioned Orlando. That sale has not closed yet. Any new intel there? Yeah, I've spoken to a source who said it's it's going to close soon. It should be a done deal soon. Okay. I would expect So, nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about. I think the announcement will happen soon. And... um yeah, I mean, I mean, the the Wilfs Purple Empire will expand from right. Minnesota to Florida. That's right. Just paint the town purple. It's already Fill painted purple, baby. That's the nice thing about it. Fill the bowl. Thanks for listening to this episode of Allocation Disorder. <laughs> it's been fun. We'll be back next week. Uh, probably back on a normal schedule, but who knows? Um, and yeah, like I said, fill the bowl. 